find the experts at in this space and place your capital with those folks because you know the weekend warriors and the mom and pops that put their hundred grand of blood sweat and tear earned dollars into a deal and see that dissolve like it just doesn't make any sense to do that i don't think you're listening to ice cream with investors a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Randy, welcome to the show. Awesome, Matt. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Well, let's see here. It, um, that's not something I have to ponder too long about because I am a, and always have been, a huge fan of Chocolate Chip by Baskin Robbins. Ever since I was a little boy growing up, my grandpa used to bring me there. Um, so yeah, hands down, that's my favorite ice cream. Was that Waffle his ice cream too? too? Waffle cone that? is a definite. Was uh, chocolate chip his favorite ice cream there too? You know, I don't know if it was or not. Uh, you know, as a young kid, I was so excited about what I had, I didn't even notice what he was eating. So yeah. 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 Nice. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, so today I am the founder of Impact Equity, and Impact Equity is a real estate investment firm that was founded just shortly after I got laid off a year ago, May, and the goal of Impact Equity is to educate and inspire the new or newer passive investor uh, to help introduce them to this space that really, um, it has been a game changer for my family and I, and I think it's just something that everybody needs to be aware of, so I'm doing everything I can to make uh, make the larger population aware of this amazing space. Perfect. Well, I want to get into the story about laid off and how you got into it. But before we get there, where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I, um, I started in the single family space. I'm based here in Phoenix. So I, economically, it didn't make sense to buy single family long-term hold here in Phoenix. So after listening to Bigger Pockets for far too many years and reading way too many books and sitting on the sidelines, not taking any action, I decided to buy a couple of turnkeys in Kansas City. And I found out very, very quickly that turnkey, well, turnkey with the operator that I chose was not going to be a good path for us. So we ended up moving into the Burr strategy, buying a bunch of houses in Atlanta, and then finally found passive investing where we just fell in love. So, um, if a, a turnkey is new to our invest uh, to our listeners out there, what does turnkey mean? Could you define that? Yeah. So, a turnkey investment by by definition is um, buying a turnkey investment that you essentially you you pay your down payment. Um, 20, 25%, whatever that is for financing. And then by design or definition, you would hope that it's turnkey and you don't have to do anything else at all. So it's, it's a fully rehabbed house. It has a tenant in it. It's managed by a property manager and essentially you're buying yield. Um, so might end up buying a hundred thousand dollar house. You put 25 grand down and then you might expect to get a couple hundred dollars a month in positive cash flow. So it sounds really good, right? Um, so the yeah. turnkey operators that I look at, they buy distressed houses, they fix them up. They've got a mortgage company lined up for you. They've got a property management company lined up for you. You just buy it and hold it and they do the rest. What was your experience though? Because it sounds like uh, you might not have had a most positive experience. Yeah, so I, um, I think the model actually works if you're working with a good operator. And I think it's, uh, it's important 
to partner maybe on nicer assets if you're doing that versus these were probably C, C minus assets. And as it turned out, the operator, he had presented it as if it was a turnkey, meaning there should not be any significant improvement in the coming, you know, you would think maybe 12 months, 18 months, maybe 24 months. Uh, but very, very shortly after closing, we had a full roof replacement. We had a four or $5,000 plumbing repair. We had um, some drainage issues around the foundation. And it just ended up turning into a money pit. And, uh, you know, if if you're banking on, call it two to $300 a month, an $8,000 roof basically whites out the cash flow for the next four years. So you're, you're 25 grand out of your pocket and then you're in the hole for the next four years. So now I will say that a lot of it falls on me because I didn't do the due diligence I should have. And I, I didn't actually even get a... Um, um, oh well, gosh, it's a uh, inspection. I didn't have have somebody come in and do a third party not review of it. Um, you know what I'm trying to say here? Like an inspection? Uh, inspection, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, had I done the inspection, I would have probably found all of the issues that would have shown up in the you know the following 12 to 18 months. But when he shared that he had already done an inspection, and I could either see his or go pay five or eight hundred dollars to get my own. I decided to get cheap and not not pay for the the third party inspection. Yeah, that's the general. It sounds like you had some problems that I had with single family. Is when you're only making two to four hundred dollars a month in cash flow. If you have a new roof, that wipes out your cash flow for the entire year. Not only that, but maybe even the next year. Right. So, is there anything through that experience like you would have done different um, to avoid some of those issues? Yeah, I would say, um, first and foremost, I, I think the due diligence process and really getting a good understanding of the operator that you're dealing with is really, really important. Um, so understanding the operator, doing background checks, uh, potentially looking at other projects, talking with other investors, and not necessarily you know, calling him and asking him for his list of his two buddies that he calls referrals. Um, but actually getting, finding people through your network um, that uh, can actually vouch for the quality of work that they're doing. Now, secondary to that would be getting an inspection uh, because anytime you're buying real estate, you should have inspections that you can fall back on because that really tells you what type of CapEx expense to expect in the coming years. So um, now I know that I only invest with operators that I have been referred to by very good friends or my network, which uh, takes a lot of the risk out of the equation if if you know somebody who has a good experience with them. Got it, got it. So you were doing turnkey in Kansas City and then you went the complete opposite went and, and started doing burrs, but not even in your backyard. So first of all, would you help us define what a burr is and then we'll talk through how you got to Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Burr, by definition, is buy, um, rehab, refi or rent, refinance, repeat. So essentially flipping, but you keep the property, put a tenant in it, and you hold it for a year plus. Um, so it's very active. It's, it's definitely not a passive investment by any means. Um, it is a very, very good way to create capital because essentially you're flipping, flipping and there are tax benefits to holding more than a year and a day. Um, but outside of that, it is absolutely not passive in, in, any, in any way, shape or form. 
So how, why did you decide to go with this strategy? And then how did you end up in Atlanta? Yeah, so I liked the idea of long-term rental. Um, you know, what I learned by that point is that anybody who's who's um, been able to create any significant amount of wealth had been able to do so, usually with at least a portion in real estate. So I knew for a very, very long time that I wanted to get into real estate investing. I just didn't know, know how. Um, the reason I chose single family, very similar to a lot of people, is I know single family. Um, lived in single family, bought single family personally, so it just made sense. And of course, HGTV grabs the interest of anybody who's ever turned a wrench or swung a hammer, and I thought it would be a fun thing to do. Um, so we, we, we knew going into, even before the turnkey, that we wanted to get into single family. Um, after going through the negative turnkey process, I decided that I wanted to have more control in that process, i.e. take over the project management, the finding of the property, finding the property manager, all of those types of things. And I was in a position where I was a W-2 sales guy for 25 years. I was I was a top performer, so I had quite a bit of autonomy to do, come and go as I want, and had the flexibility to hop on calls and and chase realtors or all of those other things that you do. So it seemed like a good mix of active slash passive that would help us grow wealth, which was ultimately the the goal was to grow wealth from a very early time. So did you did you keep the turnkeys while you were doing those? So I did not. I ended up shifting I ended up selling all of my turnkeys, uh, all of my singles around the middle of last year, just shortly, like right in conjunction with getting laid off from the job. That was We'd made the decision we're going passive and we're going all in with passive and um, ended up selling all the houses really at the top of the cycle. So our timing was impeccable um, just simply by luck. But uh, yeah, we I mean, we created quite a bit of wealth over a relatively short amount of time period. So yeah, it was it was a good exercise for us to learn what we didn't know and figure out where we wanted to go with future investments. So some people out there might be listening to this and saying, first of all, I love the Burr strategy and that's what we do in our multifamilies. That's what I've done on a couple single families. I mean, usually they're the best returns percentage wise because you, you end up walking away from those deals with no money in the deal or getting yep. paid to hold that real estate. So who yep. cares if you only make it a couple hundred bucks a month, but what challenges did you face trying to do that in Atlanta when you're over in Phoenix? Yeah, so that, you know, a lot of people say this long distance investing is a very easy process. I know a ton of people that do it. Um, you hear all of the big gurus talk about having, you know, some feet on the street or at least having something local that you can rely on one person at least to make an intro to all the other trades that you need. And um, we landed on Atlanta just simply by following Neil Bawa's process of identifying good positive markets that look like they're going to do well in the future. So, you know, we, we analyzed a hundred different markets. We landed on like five and we just made a personal decision that Atlanta was a place where we wanted to spend some time. Um, so my wife uh, was able to spend quite a bit of time trying to find that, that first contact that was really going to be the feet on the street. And it was, it was a realtor. Um, what we find is that uh, the best realtors out there aren't eager to work with, you know, the new investor that says, hey, it's the first time I'm doing this. They like avoid you like the plague. 
So we ended up getting hooked up with a realtor out there that, um, you know, in hindsight, it all worked out fine, but it was a challenge really from day one, just different morals, different uh, guiding principles. Um, certainly our interests were not aligned. Um, so he ended up connecting us to a contractor, which, um, I mean, we could talk for hours about the stories that we had with this contractor. One that's kind of funny, I will share. Um, we finally made the decision to fly out there after we had bought a property. We had bought this $50,000 house that was um, in the bad part of town. And, um, you know, it was kind of an up and coming area. So that was fine. We got excited about it. But we flew out there about three months after we had started the project. And we were going to meet the realtor, going to meet the contractor. And when we walked into the house the day before we were supposed to meet, we wanted to go see it. Of course, we get in town and we wanted to go see it. Um, the thing had been gutted down to the two by fours on the inside. And this was supposed to be like a, a paint and lipstick flip. Mm -hmm. So the guys that he had hired to demo the kitchen and do this took the whole place down to the studs. And then when we showed up the next morning, he presented it as, hey, good news. I've decided that I'm going to do all of this work for you even for free, even though um, he had just basically hired a guy that screwed up and, and he was now on the hook for getting this thing back to back to whole. So um, it, it was a heck of a ride. But in the end, we ended up doing really, really well on that property and, and many others there. So, yeah. How many did you end up buying in that market? Yeah, so we had, at one point we had four there. So that brought our total to six. Um, one was a dog that we just, we dumped because, um, once again, I did not follow the advice of getting a good inspection. We got an inspection, but I didn't trust the guy. So it ended up being a teardown. And uh, we got out of that one by the skin of our teeth because we would have probably lost a hundred grand on that had we moved forward with the teardown and the rebuild and yeah, we, we yeah. I think we lost a few thousand dollars on that house to sell it and get rid of it. Um, but as a whole, we stepped away from that one. We sold the others. We created a few hundred grand in equity. It was all good. So yeah. Anything you learned from that process trying to do that from afar? Because I know some of our listeners live in like California or Oregon where it's really tough to do burrs and um, flips in their market. Anything you learned from trying to do that from afar? Yeah, so the, the single most important thing that we learned is hire experts to do what they do best and trust them to do it. So, um, you know, if you are going to have a contracting business, hire a contractor that knows what the hell they're doing and pay them and pay them well, and they will take care of you and uh, everybody will benefit from that. Um, it, understanding where your strengths and weaknesses are is just key to getting into this space. And if you've got... If you're a high income earner and you've got um, great capital, but you don't have the time or the expertise, hire somebody like you or I to partner with to place capital into deals with experts that know what they're doing in that space. So even with what I'm doing today, like I am not the expert operator um, in multifamily or short term rentals or whatever the asset class is. My expertise that I've, I've, I've built over the last handful of years is vetting operators and finding good teams to make sure that they can get, um, get the business plan across the finish line ultimately. So, yeah, gotcha. So you mentioned you sold out of your single families, uh, and started moving towards more passive. What, what time period was that? Yeah. So my first passive investment was in 2019. And that was about a year after we started the single family space. 
Um, so we bought the we bought the um, the two turnkeys um, pretty quickly. Within a few months, we were doing Burr in Atlanta, and then around the beginning of the next year, the market had already started to just explode. And um, transparently, I would have probably kept going down the Burr path um, if the market hadn't exploded. Just simply because the model works and you can create wealth w quickly. Um, but the market did not allow that to happen, so I started shifting over into passive while still doing the single families as well. So we've now been passively investing since 19, and I, I think I'm in like 24 deals now across six different asset classes and 10 different operators. So as a guy that was doing it actively, why did you decide to invest passively with, uh, into a passive larger commercial deal? Yeah, so in, initially it's very different. Uh, initial reason why I started doing it is different than why I do it today. So when I first started, the plan, at least initially, was to invest passively to start to understand the syndication model, the passive investing space, um, all the different nuances that go with that to essentially get a peek behind the curtains to see if this was something I wanted to do full time, like active multifamily apartment investing where I would be the lead key principal or the, um, the lead GP. Um, I, I found pretty quickly that the people that are really doing this well, um, this is not a hobby, it's not a side gig, it is, um, it's probably more hours working than I was working in my W-2 and my my active investing because um, the guys that I see that are crushing it are, I mean, they're crushing it because they are working their butts off and they are working 50, 60 hours a week doing everything they can to make sure that that investment goes perfectly for their investors. So um, I, I found out quickly that I just, I didn't have the bandwidth, I didn't have the time, I didn't have the expertise to be an operator. So it seemed very, it made perfect sense to me that if I've got this, you know, as Dave Ramsey, which might be a bad name, but as Dave Ramsey would say, I had a very big shovel, right, that I was earning extremely good income. And if I could siphon 25, 50, 100 grand a quarter over into passive deals while I'm doing what I do best, which is earn dollars in my W-2 role or my technology role or whatever that is, like that gives me the best of both worlds. Earn the money and place it with the folks that will be the true stewards of those dollars, the experts in their field. So that's why I went there originally. Okay. Yeah, that that's it, right? Like one of the things that I try to communicate is if you've got a high net worth skill, um, making uh, a credit investor status or a doctor or a sales professional, you don't want to start at zero trying to do active real estate all over yep. again. Like you're yep. probably better siphoning off some of that money, getting involved passively, allowing it to generate cash flow to offset your expenses. And now you're playing with the house money essentially. So you, you talked a little bit about getting let go from your job and um, that transition period. Can you talk to us a little bit about like how did your income streams from real estate help you weather getting laid off during that time period? Yeah, yeah, and it's um, I mean this is this is the main part of my story is that um, what you didn't share is I got laid off actually ten years prior, and I did not have revenue streams, and I did while I did get a severance, it was very very clear that I had to go out and find another job as soon as possible because as soon as that severance package was gone, 
the bills aren't getting paid, right? So about halfway through my tenure in my last organization is when I started the real estate investing journey, both active and then ultimately passive. So when I ended up getting laid off in May of 2022, my passive income, that that just magically appears in my bank account on the first or the fifth or the seventh of the month covered the majority of our household expenses. So in addition to that, we ended up selling all of those single family homes. So we got this huge cash influx of additional dollars, which more than offset the dollars I was going to earn for the rest of the year. So I encourage folks to, you know, as you said, keep the job where you're making the W-2, start putting dollars off to where you can ultimately decrease your dependence on that W-2. And once you do, like you show up to work a different person if you don't have to make the dollars. All of a sudden you have options. And if, if corporate says you're moving to Wyoming or you're out of a job, cool, enjoy yourself, have a nice day. Like the, the corporate America does not own you anymore if you can offset your monthly expenses with passive income. That's it. And that's the point I want to communicate to every investor out there is if you want to work your W-2, that's where you get your highest fulfillment. You enjoy what you're doing. Keep doing that. Yeah. I feel like, unfortunately, in our space, there's a lot of folks that say, if you do that, you're a chump and you shouldn't do that. And there's only one real path and it's not through a W-2 or a high specialized skill set when I completely disagree with that. If you're happy doing that, continue doing that. But ultimately, you should invest that capital because you will come to a point where you need income streams. And I was listening to this uh, podcast this morning that was talking about like, what's the point of saving up in a 401k? It's to have income streams that you can draw down on. So why do you do that? Why not start creating your income streams today? Um, to help you prepare for that time whenever that time comes. Yep, I, I cannot agree more. And I, I have actually, my pendulum's kind of swung the other way to where I, I'm not a fan of 401ks anymore. I think it's absolutely insane that we teach our kids to feed into a 401k when they're paying the lowest tax rate that they will ever pay. And I am, I'm encouraging them to invest into that so when they're in their highest earnings and their highest tax bracket, they can pull the dollars out and pay even more taxes. It's just absolutely insane to me. And it's, um, you know, if you're in the situation where you end up getting separated for a position, if your dollars are locked up in a 401k, you cannot create livable income out of those dollars. So if you have dollars sitting outside of a 401k, whether it's in real estate or the stock or whatever that is, um, you can actually invest where it creates livable monthly cash flow income that can actually help you bridge those periods where there could be some employment challenges. So um, it, that's certainly controversial, and I haven't fully, um, you know, fully established the messaging on that. But I, I'm not a big fan of 401ks anymore, and it's I, it's not a self-serving thing. It's something I'm seeing um, where I've got a very large bucket of dollars that are sitting in a 401k that do zero for me for the next 15 years. Yep. So. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, 
I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Well, so let's talk through this then, because I, on principle, I agree with you. Like you should not invest in your 401k. You should take that money and build income streams. However, I know that a majority of people, if they see an extra 25 grand sitting into their bank account, they are going to buy the new fence. They are going to take the vacation. They are going to do something with it that ultimately is not investing it. So I struggle with what you're saying because I agree with it in principle. But also the same people that Dave Ramsey talks to or talk to Dave Ramsey would agree that they know they have a spending problem and a self-control problem. And even myself, like I consider myself very financially disciplined, but I know if I see an extra 5K in there, I'm more likely to spend it on something that I, I wouldn't if it wasn't there. So how do you round that? that square? Yeah. Talk me through that. So I think if financial discipline is a challenge, um, then 401k can be a good tool to protect yourself from your own um, inability to save, right? Uh, but if discipline is not an issue um, and, and you can be educated and understand that there's options to, you know, take those same dollars that are getting pulled from your check and have them automatically deposit into some type of account which you automatically feed into other investments, then it, it really solves for the same problem. And it really just, it fall, it comes down to the fact is, can you be disciplined with your dollars or not? Um, if you are, then I think you should. If you're not, then by all means, leverage the very expensive and what I would consider ineffective um, ways of investing dollars for the future. Because I, I suspect if you were to poll the audience and say, how many of you have been investing the max um, from the day they first started with their employment to today? And if they were to put that in the calculator, what does that do for an income uh, for them after they retire? What, what I found when I started doing that is even though for a, quite, a, quite a while I was, I was putting dollars into these 401ks, I was going to have to work without a doubt into my mid-60s, more likely my late-60s, before I could play the 4% rule game and create the lifestyle that I needed to. So, um, you know, somebody who's able to save $10,000 a year, if you get that into syndications that are doubling in value, even five to seven years, be conservative, call it seven years, like put that in a calculator and see how powerful that can be after 10 years, after 15 years, far more powerful than um, putting it into a 401k that you're bleeding off two to 3% in fees per year. Yeah. And I, I want to highlight what you said earlier. When you're making, let's call it $100,000 a year, and you're moving money into your 401k, you're probably ultimately saving a couple hundred dollars in taxes a year. But ultimately, when you go draw that, and that money is now, you know, not a couple thousand, but let's call it 2 million, and you're drawing from that, now you're in a higher tax bracket paying 40%. All of yep. a sudden, you're paying a couple thousand on it. So it comes down to this idea of would you rather pay taxes on the seed or the harvest? And the goal should always be if you have to pay taxes, pay it on the seed versus the harvest. Exclamation point, drop the <laughs> mic. Yes, that should be the title of the show. Definitely. Well, 
And, and I think one other thing I want to mention is um, an idea I thought about on my run this morning when I was listening to that is if you have discipline issues with your capital, almost every payroll software out there today will allow you to split that check into different accounts. Yep. So what I would encourage or think about doing is setting up a high yield savings account that's only available online and then not saving the password using one of those auto generators hashtag seven uh, exclamation point <laughs> lowercase yeah. j uppercase l like one of those passwords yep. don't don't save it in a password manager write it down and th- put it into a safe drawer or something and then ultimately you you won't feel like you have that money because you'll yep. you won't recognize it after the third or fourth paycheck and then when you go look at it six months from now a year from now you'll see a couple thousand dollars in there yeah yeah, no, I think I think it's great, and there are there are syndications out there, and there are tools where people can invest with as little as ten thousand or even five thousand dollars into the syndication model. So you know, the, the, long gone are the days where hundred thousand dollar minimums are like all that are out there. It's just not the case anymore. So um, if you can put together ten grand, you can get into the syndication space as a passive investor to test the model and grow your experience in education. And as that 10 doubles into 20, doubles into 40, doubles into 80, that starts to create a really exciting story. And if you're doing it every year, it gets even more and more exciting, so. Yep, yep. So let's switch gears and now talk a little bit about what you're doing over at Impact Equity. Um, Talk to us about the asset classes that you're involved in, or or what do you all, primarily in today. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, the goal of impact equity is to give our investors diversification across deals, um, operators. So different syndication groups, asset classes, and geography really be kind of a one-stop shop for the passive investor that's trying to place capital. Okay. By having one relationship with impact equity, you can see one to two deals every single month with minimums of 25 to $50,000 with vetted operators that have proven track records that, um, you know, we're doing an incredible due diligence process with them with background checks and site visits and knowing the team, those types of things, okay? So as of today, we have two asset classes that we work with. We work with both accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, I mirror the partners that I work with very similar to my own personal portfolio which I hold about 65% in multifamily, and I hold 35% in other assets. So we've got two operators that we work with for non-accredited investors um, in the multifamily space, and I've got one operator that I'm working with in the short-term rental space. And it really, having different asset classes gives us access to create more of a diversified portfolio for folks that are both trying to increase their wealth and create cash flow or monthly livable income that they can they can actually live on. How have you seen, so you mentioned the short-term space, how have you seen the short-term space kind of evolve over the past, I don't know, uh, 24 months? Yeah, so 20, oddly enough, 24 months ago, I was trying to buy short-term rentals myself here in Scottsdale because I, I had this desire to still buy something here in Arizona that I can go get my hands dirty with, even though I have no business swinging, swinging a hammer or, or using a saw or any of that stuff. Anyways, um, so 24 months ago, uh, even at that point, uh, I was not able to find assets that I could justify purchasing and, and having the risk of buying those on my own 
because they just didn't create enough cash flow. And, you know, thank God I didn't buy one of those, you know, half million dollar condos in Scottsdale because a, a year ago we saw the volume or the, the value of those start to drop. And we've seen them drop by as much as 20%. So if you put 20% down on an asset, and then it drops by 20%, all of a sudden you've got no equity and the bank actually can come knocking on the door, right? So that's where you were two years ago compared to a year ago compared to today. The mom and pop operators are, they're getting crushed, quite frankly. Um, they don't have, and, and I'm talking in generalities here, there are some fantastic mom and pop operators, but as a whole, the mom and pop operators don't have the scale or the expertise or the resources to buy, manage, or um, sell those on the back end for it to make any sense at all. So um, we're seeing average daily rates for mom and pops drop. We're seeing occupancy rates drop pretty significantly. Here in Phoenix, we had the Super Bowl here last year, and 40% of the short-term rental homes sat empty on Super Bowl weekend wow. in this market, right? Wow. Um, so. What, what does that mean is that like if like any time you're going to place capital into an asset class, find the experts at in this space and place your capital with those folks. Because, you know, the weekend warriors and the mom and pops that put their hundred grand of blood, sweat and tear earned dollars into a deal and see that dissolve, like it just doesn't make any sense to do that. I don't think. Why, why do you think 40 percent set empty during the Super Bowl? Yeah, so I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me because the hotels that were right next to the places were, were fully booked. Um, I've heard that there was such a huge influx of new properties um, combined with a bad experience with some of the um, mom and pop operators where people have started to lose their trust in the short-term rental space. I, I can share with you, my wife and I, we've probably stayed in 35 or 40 short-term rentals over the last decade or so. And when we went on our big trip to Spain last year, we opted just to stay in hotels because they're predictable. Um, and just, we had too many negative experiences. So um, it's just like anything. I, I like scalability. I like large operators. I like um, folks that have access to resources and, uh, and expertise. So that, sorry, that's a, a long answer to a short question, but I think yeah. that's it. That's it. No. No, and I think I took a look at some of the short-term rentals you guys are um, representing over there, and they seem to be larger, more quality assets with an Instagrammable moment somewhere in the hotel, yeah. in the property, whether it's an indoor slide or something like that. And yeah. I think those um, come with experience in the sense of knowing what to put in certain markets to attract investors, as well as expertise in the algorithms and how to make sure you pop through the algorithms and that sort of things too. Exactly. If you go to any one of the 10 markets and search for, you know, a five bedroom, three bath house in any of the, any one of the markets we're in, we are always one or two and where you, where you rank, whether it's with Google or with Airbnb or, or what have you, um, that's what determines uh, a large portion of it. And it's, it's simple things like you mentioned experience, but we, could, we do theme-based homes and little things like paying $500 to have a photographer go out there and take pictures versus yep. somebody using their cell phone. Just simple little things can have a really, really big impact on the results. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, Randy, I'm going to switch us now to our last round. I'm calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah. So I, um, it's been about a year now, but I'm a big fan of Benjamin Hardy and, um, Oh, the gentleman that he worked with, um, the who not how series. Dan Sullivan. Yeah. Dan Sullivan. Yeah. Really, really big fan of all the books that they as a group have put out there. But this idea of who not how, um, has been transformational for me in my business in the last year. And, um, really in my investing as well. Like you hear that theme constantly when you talk to me, it's like hire an expert to do what they do and let me focus on what my superpower is. Um, not only do you get better results, but it frees you up to really focus on the things you love doing. So, um, you know, when I first started, I was building my own websites. I was doing my own social media. I'm writing all of this content. I'm like all this stuff that I got no business doing. I've got no expertise. Um, and the funniest lesson is like I hired a guy off of Fiverr for $40 and he, he essentially helped me raise my first million dollars uh, with an activity that I would have probably spent 40 hours doing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's a no brainer. Hire the experts Pro- to do what they do. Probably a pretty good investment right there. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Yeah, so that's a big deal. I um, I have spent, there's a book called, um, oh, the morning, uh, Miracle Morning. And uh, I've kind of tailored that as uh, just kind of a foundation of my day. I think if you, if you start your day off with discipline, discipline, the discipline will flow throughout the day. S- simple things like get up and make your bed as soon as you get up. I sit down and I have a healthy breakfast. I um, meditate. I journal. I set my intention for the day. I write down three goals for the day and I always exercise. So um, starting your day with that type of discipline and foundation, I think just carries with you throughout the rest of the day. Um, one other thing I started doing about a, well, almost two years ago now is I mentioned that I write down kind of three goals for the day, but at the end of the day, I write down three wins and I always track, I, I keep a journal of things that I learned throughout the day, week, month, year. At the end of the week, I will do a summary of my learnings and my wins. At the end of the month, I will summarize my weekly winnings and learnings at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year. And, um, you know, it's odd from a mindset standpoint, it's, uh, you get to the end of the week and you're deflated, you're tired, you left it all out there. Um, and then you do a weekly review and see everything that you accomplished. And it's just, it's super inspirational to do that. And then when I did it at the end of the year, last year, like I, I didn't have goosebumps thinking about it. It was amazing to sit down and look at what was accomplished in one year, um, by leveraging this process. We forget 90% of the things we do well in life. Yep. Amen. So our third one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, just start period. Like, um, I sat on the sidelines for far too many years. Um, you know, like I talk with investors as well as, you know, we spend so much time vetting, getting comfortable, research, learn all of this other stuff. Um, had I started my journey, 
when I first got into this space, I probably could have left my W-2 five years earlier and I, my, my net worth would probably be 2x what it is today. So um, I am a, a ready, fire, aim guy, uh, build the parachute on the way down, um, you know, done is better than perfect guys. So just start, uh, take that first actionable step and, uh, and you can always readjust. Yeah. Our fourth one is, what are you most proud of in your life? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I'll share two with you. One is I am a, um, this is the personal one. I'm a long distance dad, um, went through divorce. My wife, ex-wife ended up moving to Oregon and I've showed up as a dad to a a little girl in Oregon. I've made over a hundred trips there in the last 10 years. And, um, that is probably my single biggest accomplishment is still showing up as a dad in a difficult situation. Um, one that's kind of fun. Um, I, I've been always kind of a, not an athlete, but I've been an active person, but I've never been an athlete. And I made the decision to do an Ironman about 10 years ago. And after four or five years of training, I did an Ironman in 2018, which was one of the greatest days of my life. It was, you cannot explain um, running across the finish line after 13 and a half hours. It's just unbelievable. 13 and a half. So you did the full? I did the full. Yeah. Did you do the one in there in uh, uh, Phoenix? No, I decided to go to uh, uh, Mile High, you know, Denver. Boulder. And wow. do Boulder. And uh, yes, it was the feels like temperature was over 100 degrees back in 2018 when I did that. People were dropping like flies. It was yeah. amazing, though. Yeah, I think that one actually has one of the highest DNFs out there. So I'm an Ironman athlete. Um, oh, you I've are. Done them all over the world. So we'll have to okay. nerd out afterwards about that. But yeah, I yeah, uh, you picked it, a heck it actually of a spot has the it. it has the highest mortality rate as well. People that die in the swim in yeah. uh, in Boulder. Anyway, yeah, yeah, you're like breathing through a straw. So uh, <laughs> exactly, I can see that. yeah. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? So I am going to go with Jim Rohn. Um, I was a sales guy, like I said, for 25 years, I spent a lot of time in front of the windshield driving from client to client. And I feel like Jim Rohn has been the best mentor of my life. Probably listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of Jim Rohn, the same thing over and over and over again, but I'm a big, big fan of Jim Rohn. Yeah, that's actually how I start my morning is listening to Jim Rohn while I stretch. So no uh, kidding, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah. I love the way he talks too. I don't know, it's just fun. <laughs> it's it's an acquired taste. My wife uh, is not as big of a fan, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Randy, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to learn more about you or what you've got going on on Impact Equity, where's the best place we can point them? Really two places. My website is impactequity.net. Of course, I've got to give away like the the um, passive investing journey for the sales professional. I've got a guide that you can download there. But I do spend probably most of my time on LinkedIn is where you'll get the fastest response from me under Randy Sparfit. We will leave those in the show notes. And then Randy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.